Good evening, and welcome to the fourth episode of my podcast. Going back to the original name for the podcast now, Human Matter. Uh, today, I have a guest for you, Charlie Deist. He is a former staff writer for the Seasteading Institute, and he runs the blog Let a Thousand Nations Bloom at a thousand nations.com. It's a libertarian group blog dedicated to the idea of startup societies and dynamic geography where you will also find a few of my writings. Um, Charlie is currently the producer of the Bob Zadig Show, which is a libertarian radio program uh, run weekly from the Bay Area. And Charlie and I, uh, this, this is a, a bit of a special episode. Charlie and I talk from the cabin of his sailboat. Uh, not only is Charlie uh, interested in seasteading, but he is also a practitioner. Uh, we talk about seasteading, of course, and from there we talk, uh, we get in depth into Charlie's conversion to Christianity and Catholicism as an adult. Uh, we talk a lot about faith and grace and other topics around uh, religion and life philosophy. And at the end, I get a chance to talk about my favorite video game on the topic of loss, uh, getting over it. Hopefully, I'll get a chance to interview the creator of that someday. But without any further ado, I give you a, a sunny, uh, breezy podcast with my friend and guest, Charlie Deist. My guest today is Charlie Deist. Um, and Charlie, could you uh, introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about your professional background? Uh, sure, Jacob. So I guess this would start uh, going back to college when I started to sort of develop a, an interest in what might be called uh, maybe somewhat unfortunately professional libertarianism. Uh, there was a series of internships and opportunities that uh, were sort of centered around the uh, what, what has been called the Coctopus. This is sort of Charles Koch's uh, funding it's sort of a philanthropic arm for him Charles Koch is the businessman who is often sort of reviled in in a lot of press and sort of uh, mainstream media for being kind of the the arch villain of a lot of these stories around capitalism and um, I uh, I started to go in the direction of of uh, uh, kind of libertarianism as a career path through these nonprofits, sort of ideological service providers, um, worked for uh, the Independent Institute, which is a think tank here in Oakland. And then uh, around that time, I found out about this idea called seasteading, which captivated my imagination a lot more than these sort of run-of-the-mill projects. And not to say that, uh, that the think tanks are, are not producing any sort of value, but um, the kind of ideology as uh, as service started to get a little bit tired to me. And this idea of seasteading, which is uh, homesteading the high seas in, in its simplest formulation. Uh, you could also call it startup societies in international waters. Uh, it's the brainchild of Patry Friedman, grandson of Milton Friedman, and uh, Peter Thiel, which uh, aims to kind of build a culture and do the research to get seasteads uh, off the ground, if you'll excuse the pun, sometime in the next 
who knows, it could be, you know, five, 10, but, but the long-term vision is sort of uh, shifting onto the ocean as a, as a new frontier for experimentation with different kinds of governments. Um, and so when I found out about this, it was like that, that was, I knew I wanted to be a seasteader. Didn't know what a seasteader was, but I knew I wanted to be one. So I kept my eye on the Institute uh, and, and the job openings. And it was just a few months after graduating that there was a little bit of a shift in the, in the strategy of the Seasteading Institute. Some of the leadership had uh, turned over when the, the original founding team had split off to, to try out sort of for-profit venture in that same area. And I, uh, I kind of got into this second iteration as an administrator and, and gradually worked my way towards more of a, a writing role and coordinating the ambassadors, the volunteers for seasteading. Um, did that for two or three years and found it to be one of the, the more you know, stimulating things that I have done and I continue to be involved with seasteading. Uh, but I left to kind of pursue my own path towards seasteading, which was more around just sailboats and trying to spend more time on the water. So I didn't have any particular idea of what I was gonna do when I left, but uh, I was lucky that a few months after that uh, was uh, contacted by a, a host of a local radio show named Bob Zadek, and he does an hour a week of just sort of libertarian politics, and uh, he was looking for a, a new producer, and my, I guess I, I fit the bill, fit what he was looking for, so now I produce that radio show, and um that's uh, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. I, I produced the Bob Zadig show and continue to seastead in my free time. Well, I'd like to point out for um, our listeners that we are currently t- uh, recording this from your sailboat. Um, what one, one what one might call your your seastead or, or your baystead uh, out here in at Berkeley Marina. Correct. Yep. This is uh, Tara, the Columbia Twenty Four. She's not quite big enough to call a seastead. Um, you know, can't quite stand up in the cabin, but I've, um, I've spent many a, many a night aboard Tara, both on the bay and in her slip here in Berkeley. And it definitely is a different kind of lifestyle. It's a different mindset. Uh, and you meet a lot of interesting characters just hanging around boats and around marinas. So I'm glad that that, that I made that transition toward, uh, sort of seasteading as, uh, as a real experiment in, you know, the physical stuff of, of boats and the water as opposed to just the purely kind of intellectual thought experiment. You know, one, one thing that my more progressive friends have criticized libertarianism for is that they see it as um, its flaw, and, and I agree as a, as a libertarianish person, um, that the flaw in libertarianism is that it tends to over intellectualization um, and not and, and trying to figure out the right answers versus like taking action in the world and there's a way that some of the more technological kinds of libertarianism like if you think about seasteading as a new kind of governance technology or the cypherpunks um, like these are the direct action of libertarianism um, it's creating the world that we want to see and that's kind of exciting um, that there is something more than talk going on. Like there's people with sailboats that are that more libertarians can sail now than they could 10 years ago. Yeah. I think Michelangelo said it best, uh, criticized by creating 
and it's easy to stand back and kind of critique the state and blame it for all of society's problems, but to shift the frame to actually saying, you know, what if, what if you could try uh, your own idea of how you could have a society that operated without government or without the use of unjustified force of fraud? What would that actually look like? And it ends up shifting a lot more of the burden of proof onto, you know, the individuals often idealistic uh, to actually try to sort of, you know, make their their own lives and patterns of behavior match up with what's kind of a lofty ideology. It feels like a, a maturation of libertarianism in some way. Like when you take that responsibility to actually put something out into the world um, and to like and to live your values, um, it's uh, it's it, it, I find it to be more convincing. Yeah, and also uh, sometimes kind of scary from a uh, from an from the vantage point of you know I will have to make more of my own decisions and there won't be the same kind of guardrails maybe that uh, that the the government provides in its you know in its better forms where it might not be the the heavy-handed Soviet Union style government but you know it seems like what we're moving towards in the United States and a lot of Western liberal democracies is this sort of soft paternalism where Oh, look at that. We've got a friend. <laughs> we got a seagull that's outside. You might be, able to, might be able to hear that. Yeah, that's the, the status, status seagull occupying J-Doc. No, but um, Western Western democracy is kind of moving towards the, the nudge, the system of nudges where they'll encourage savings in these forms that seem like they're best suited for most people and you have to kind of opt out. Um, and you know, for those who are interested in opting out, it's kind of a higher risk strategy. Maybe, uh, maybe it's like higher uh, potential rewards that you know you can potentially reap. But then there's also the possibility of just sort of completely slipping through the cracks. Um, and I don't know if that's something that private societies can address. Uh, as well, if, if they're made up of people that are all of sort of an, an individualist mindset, uh, the sort of social insurance problem, something like that. But these are all things that hopefully can be tested out in, in new ways in the years to come. Now, on, on a personal level, have you found that your engagement with the, the sea to have changed you at all? I definitely find it to be calming to go out on the water especially kind of counterintuitively if it's a really windy day uh, you sort of have to adjust and you have to figure out how to regain your composure under situations that you didn't expect or uh, just generally like having the having the wind beating down on on the boat for for any amount of time then you come back to the dock and you you just have a sort of different outlook about solid land and it feels in some ways it feels more sturdy, but in other ways, you kind of realize that land is not the only modality that exists. And there have been entire societies where people have have actually lived on the water for the majority of their existence. Usually it's cases of persecuted minorities. I think in 
uh, in China or, or what what might be uh, maybe it's maybe sort of Tibetan China there there are groups of boat people who were kind of pushed onto the water by persecution um, and you know not to say that that in the United States we're in any sort of parallel situation of being persecuted but I do feel like modern life on land kind of assaults us with a lot of uh, a lot of things that evolutionarily speaking we're just not accustomed to and kind of leaving all that behind and being left with a more uh, more just purely the elements uh, and the, the sort of solitude that you get out on the water that can be I think that I think we need more of that mm. yeah, it's, it seems like a, a bit of an escape from uh, the human society that has so many ideas both in the marketplace and the government and just socially like the the people near you they have so many ideas about how you should be and um, and there's there's certainly in, in the city like in San Francisco it feels like there's a constant assault upon the senses um, uh, coming from the the masses of people milling about and uh, it influences me like I, f I definitely feel busy like the instant I set foot in San Francisco even if I I'm not that objectively busy, um, and uh, it's, it sounds like being out on the water is more of a grappling with nature. You, you know, there's there's the wind, there's the water, there's your boat, and and not so much of a social problem. Like you can kind of relax the the, the social uh, features of the brain. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're you might have a, a theory about. You know, if I adjust the sails in this way, then the boat will move differently. But it's all very firmly rooted in the the laws of physics, not uh, not so much these abstract ideas. So yeah, it definitely is. It's a nice break. And when I do the work for the radio show, a lot of times it's just I'll be you know intensely in my head thinking about an idea, trying to figure out what angle would be most interesting to talk about. And going out on the water gives me that little sort of shift in perspective to come back refreshed. But I would ask you, because we went out sailing, what was that, three or four weeks ago? And uh, was there anything that you noticed when you came back? Or was, were there any changes in, in your perception, either when you were out on the water or when you came back? Uh, yeah, I think there's um, there is a feeling of relaxation on the water, even though... There's a lot of activity on the boat as far as moving around to switch the sails or to fix the engine or to, uh, you know, for, for one reason or another, uh, if, if, the, if, we, if we have to do the thing where this, we switch the sail from one side to another, I forget what that's called. like Tacking. Tacking. Driving. Yeah, yeah we, either one. If we have to tack, like everybody has to move. But there's some way in, in which like all those things are still relaxing because it was just the three of us, three friends out, out on the water. Um, that uh, it's the relaxation of um, all my social calculus and like all these tools and, and mechanisms and systems that I have for tracking uh, who's around me and what they think of me and how I'm interacting and who's a danger, who's not a danger. Like just relaxing all that um, is uh, is great. And there's a way that being out on the water is even different, I think, than like taking a walk through the woods in that um, in the water you can see who are, if you're going to interact with a stranger you can see them coming 
Mm. Um, whereas like in the woods, you might feel like you're alone and then, and then not be alone. Uh, like there's sort of still more ways. I, th I think I'd still be more on alert for other people in the woods. So it's, it's something about the solitude um, of the water that's, uh, that's quite relaxing. Um, and, and like just the grappling with material and material systems instead of social systems is great for me. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have much of a physics background, but I feel like the more I sail, the more I develop a mental model of how the boat works. And I couldn't even really explain it necessarily. I mean, there's the, the keel, which is kind of like a wing in the water. Then there are the sails, which are kind of like a wing in the air. And this interaction of those two forces produces forward motion. Um, someone once described it to me as kind of kind of like squeezing a bar of soap between your hands. Um, so even though you're not pushing it in the direction that the bar of soap will slide out, it will move in that direction just because of these two opposing forces on the on the keel. And uh, and I like you, you just get a better feel for that. And it's it's really cool lately. You know, you mentioned the dealing with the motor. Um, I, I've had so many issues with my outboard motor that I've just kind of taken to leaving it on the dock. And uh, and it's it's not only is it better from the noise perspective, but you have to kind of think more about, OK, how am I going to get in and out? And I think. In a lot of ways, it's easier just because motors can be unpredictable. Whereas if you, you know, if you plan it right, and as long as the wind doesn't suddenly change direction, uh, sailing motorless ends up being the more dependable way to go. And it's it's cool to see boats at the Berkeley Marina. I think you have uh, an especially high percentage of motorless sailors, and I don't know if that's an environmental thing or if it's more of a sort of Zen meditative thing, but, um, but I, I prefer it as just kind of a, a holistic way of, way of sailing that, you know, it's nice to have a motor when, when you get into a pinch or if you need to get somewhere fast, but if you're just sailing for the fun of it, then I think, uh, no motor is the way to go. It would make me a little nervous going without a motor because it is useful in a, when you, as like a backup, when you, uh, having a hard time getting somewhere or the wind's not cooperating or something but that is true yeah. I, I, I see how that would be just way more zen or um, sort of primal to not have a gas powered motor with you on board um, right but like, I'm also like, like an ancient Greek yeah I'm also not a Luddite and I do believe in technology when it when it uh, when it you know pass a uh, passes a basic cost benefit and uh it's just i think on the recreational sailing side it it doesn't always pass that cost benefit but in the times that i've used my boat to get across the bay which surprisingly with how bad traffic has gotten in the bay area can actually sometimes motor sailing can be faster than driving maybe maybe not faster than bart but it's uh it's uh yeah i think that i think to get back to sort of the final plank in my professional bio, this is more aspirational, uh, but I would love to someday operate some sort of transportation, either company or just a small chartering business 
um, taking people out on the bay, getting them from point A to point B and using the wind and the tides as the, the main forces. Um, but I think that, you know, that's, that's kind of a longer term goal. I have to get my sea service time and, uh, you know, captain's license is, is a, a next step, but, uh, maybe you can check back in with me at some point in the future to see if I've made any progress on that goal. Sounds good. I look forward to that. Keep me accountable. Sounds good. Um, so I want to switch, uh, topics a little bit because I know, um, that you are a recent convert to Catholicism, um, which is interesting, an interesting move for someone to do in, in this world. Um, this world is very secular, especially in the Bay Area, and I think I'd find more people who are deconverting from religion to become some sort of atheist than I would find people going the other way. Um, so it is a it is a remarkable thing when someone uh, when someone converts in this day and age, and especially someone who is a young intelligent man who is plugged into the Bay Area uh, culture and intellectual sphere. So I'd like for I'd like to hear a little bit about your conversion experience, but also um, maybe if you could tie that into your spiritual bio and tell us like the path that you've walked to get to where you are, that would be nice to hear. Yeah, I feel like every time I, I try to recount the events it's not really i guess events is sort of the wrong word but it comes out differently because there's there's a lot of different ways to to sort of uh to start you know places to start um i was raised without any kind of religious upbringing uh some of my extended family on my mom's side was catholic my mom was i guess raised roman catholic but didn't continue it even into her late childhood and so there wasn't really any force for my parents that was telling me, you know, you should do this, you should go to church. There was kind of a general uh, ethical framework, but that I don't think, I think a lot of times when people think about Christianity, they, they're they mainly focused on uh, sort of, you know, the the morality, what what you could call kind of biblical morality, which which um, is often, you know, put as the, the kind of core. And it's not to say that ethics or morality are entirely ancillary to religion, but I do think, you know, it's it's pretty noteworthy that all of the characters in the Bible with, you know, a, a few exceptions are presented as, you know, incredibly flawed. Uh, it's just, it's an accurate representation of humanity. So I think I realized when I actually started to read the Bible and started to read some, some of the more, uh, what I think are the, the better kind of commentaries or contextualizations for, for scripture, um, it was just realizing that what I what religion had been presented as to me, or, or I should say, what Christianity had been presented to me was was a false construct. Uh, it was it was mainly about you know don't do this, don't do that. Mainly about the rules, and this also I think applies more specifically to Catholicism, where people think of it as the denomination within Christianity that puts the most focus on rules. It has you know an actual book. Of rules, unlike most denominations, it has, you know, they, they call it the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and it's actually this big, thick book. I don't, I don't think I have it here on my boat, but it, uh, it, it spells out, you know, this is what the Church teaches on this and this. Uh, but it also goes beyond ethics and kind of spells out, 
the the core dogmas, uh, which is another I think misunderstood term. Um, thing, the dogmas are things like the incarnation of Christ, that God uh, became man and dwelt among us, that he was born of a virgin. You know the the uh, the doctrine of Mary's uh, immaculate conception is another one that Mary was act- and this is more recent this is I think in just the last 70 or 80 years that the Catholic Church added this as one of their uh, one of their central teachings that uh, in order for Mary the mother of God to give birth to uh, to to the Christ that she had to also be born sort of without the the taint of original sin and we can talk more about kind of what that means, but I think that I tend to understand it um, in a from the standpoint of of human evolution. Uh, and I think I forget who said it, but uh, the, there's a quote that I like, which is that nothing really makes sense except in light of evolution. And so, rather than being uh, you know incompatible, I think faith and a, like a proper understanding of uh, of human evolution should go hand in hand. So there was uh, there was a a time a little bit after I'd graduated from college when there were a combination of factors, both sort of in my personal life and just sort of my own struggles with uh, with th- you know addictions and habits that I knew weren't really consistent with sort of higher order values that I had things that that. Uh, you know, I didn't want to do, but I did anyway, just because of some sort of weakness of will or weakness of character. Um, that combined with uh, discovering, in particular, the ideas of Rene Girard, who uh, who I found out about through um, through the the kind of writings and and talks that Peter Thiel has given over the years, um, where he's talked about Girard as being someone who influenced. His thinking, not only in investing in entrepreneurship, but um, just at sort of a deeper, uh, you know, personal level, and, and just looking at why society is the way that it is. And Girard has, is known for for kind of two main theories. Uh, the first is mimetic desire, which holds that humans desire things not just on the basis of their intrinsic worth, but we also tend to want what. Uh, what other people around us want, and we might there might be one person who we see as somehow embodying more of this some transcendental quality that we want to acquire, and we think that we can get that quality of of kind of more intense or more profound being just by having what they have. Um, and often it's you know it's it's in the area of sort of competition for status, money, mates, you name it, all the things that that we chase after kind of in the world um, and that none of us is is immune from um, we want to be liked and therefore we want to kind of have the things that we think other people uh, will like us if if um, for you know for having them and so this is what distinguishes humans from other animals is is this more intense rivalry over certain objects and in order to deal with rivalry, Girard posits that uh, we end up um, kind of scapegoating certain people within the society as a way to paper over or resolve the uh, just all these disagreements and, and quarrels that naturally come up from 
uh, from from mimetic rivalry, uh, and and he builds out this whole sort of theory of of how in archaic cultures, uh, at least the ones that survive and the ones that we have records of, and and where we know something about their mythology and the rituals that they built up, these archaic religions, um, he finds a pattern that not only is there this tendency towards scapegoating, but it actually gets institutionalized and ritualized in some form, like animal sacrifice, something that can be repeated periodically in order to cleanse the society of its of its sins, in a sense. It all gets put on this animal, and everyone can kind of, you know, the, the intensity of this psychic transferal onto the, the victim um, provides peace for the society. And so let's say, you know, everyone pins the blame on someone who has a limp or talks funny or whatever it is. Uh, in, in the wake of, of this lynch mob that, that ends up polarizing against this victim, the result is peace and, uh, and, and the, the sort of next result is that people in that society think that there must have actually been something about this victim that made them so powerful that they could both create all this uh, rivalry to begin with, which wasn't actually their fault. That's sort of the the what's not being acknowledged. And then simultaneously, and then at the same time, it, they also uh, are capable of uniting the society and bringing peace uh, when they are eliminated, when they're expelled. And so this pattern shows up again and again. And he expected to find the same thing in, when he turned to the Bible, and he finds traces of it. You can find traces of it in the Old Testament and even in a lot of New Testament theologizing, where people still sort of have this outlook of the victim as as uh, you know taking the sins of of the uh, the group. But but Gerard is trying to offer and and Scripture I think uh, has this progressive revelation of the victim's innocence. And so once once we're aware that the victim is actually innocence, we can no longer is innocent. We can no longer rely on them as a scapegoat and we have to actually deal with our violence deal with our rivalry and the the christian solution to that is you know love your neighbor it's turn the other cheek um and it's you know both simple and profound but then the the real work of it comes into play when you're actually grappling with your own desires and oftentimes uh you know we don't want to give up these desires because they're their our desires so it's for me it's kind of christianity has been um i was baptized in 2013 and that you know was was basically just like a a, a big step towards you know publicly admitting uh i think at, at that time that was when i had to uh publicly renounce satan and all of his works uh which is it, it's it sounds kind of hokey and, and funny in a way but i think when you can understand it through this sort of evolutionary lens who, who would satan be in, in this narrative is, is satan like um from an evolutionary perspective is that like the mimetic rivalry or um the things that we know we ought not to do that make it worse for ourselves and others that, that we do anyway like, like what is yeah so the the direct translation of satan is just the accuser so he's the one who uh, who accuses the the innocent victim of being guilty of these problems? He's the one who tries to deflect blame. Um, I think he, he also, you know, he's he's the one that 
I mean, he's, he's called in the Bible the father of lies. I know, and I want to talk, too, a little bit about how uh, how your upbringing and, and um, you know, I, I imagine that uh, you were steeped in a lot of these narratives in, in certain ways that um, were probably not the same way that I encountered them coming in, to them sort of in adulthood. Um, All right, how old were you when you started reading the Bible? I think probably 22 or 22 I would say 21 or 22, but, um, yeah, I was baptized in 2013 when I was, I think I was, uh, would have been 23 then. Um, but yeah, the Bible says that Satan is the father of all lies. So in a sense, he is, you know, he's the one who says you're going to be happy if you, uh, if, if you indulge in that temptation that, you know, you know, from many times, many experiences doesn't actually leave you feeling fulfilled, just leaves you sort of, uh, even, less satisfied and and um so yeah i think i think that's kind of the the basic thing is and you, you could say that it just defines everything that is uh that is not good and beautiful and true as being the devil but i do think that when you uh when you sort of try to study and unpack this with intelligent commentaries and with you know your own uh, prayerful meditation these things start to kind of develop these contours where you can get to know a little bit better what your what your shortcomings are and then when you need to uh, kind of hand it over to to God to, uh, to you know help you work through some particular struggle and I have seen that in my own life in a lot of areas but uh, but it's remained a struggle and um, and I the, the conversion to Catholicism just came in the past year and a half two years or so when I found that there were just kind of certain things that um, that I was still really continuing to struggle with and that I had never, you know, even, even in the time of my baptism, I'd never really dealt with or, or necessarily like uh, kind of confessed to the, to the community of, of Christians because there was just never really sort of the opportunity. And this plays into, I think addiction is really one of the most relevant ideas for secular people to think about the category of sin. Um, and in my own case, there was just a, a particular addiction that I sort of knew wasn't really compatible with, with my faith and was leading me in the direction of, uh, you know, making my life uh, less and less manageable. But I, I made every rationalization for it. And um, ultimately, when I kind of could no longer ignore it, um, I, I felt like I was really distanced from the uh, kind of grace that I had experienced early in my initial conversion process. And that's where some of the ideas around uh, the sacraments, um, you know, the Catholics have a very different understanding of the meaning of the Last Supper and the ritual that, uh, that, that now accompanies that, which is, you know, taking communion, the wafer and the wine, and, uh, and you know, the belief that this is actually Christ's real presence in the Catholic Church, I think, sort of adds to the uh, to the the drama of of uh, the experience of faith in a way that Protestantism they tend to have a a more kind of intellectual understanding, which in its own way I think is is very nuanced and can be um, you know satisfying and and healing for a lot of people. But for me, I found that the the Mass, the whole the whole uh, liturgy and, and uh, 
celebration around the mass was probably the the biggest factor in bringing me to Catholicism. I wanted to um, relate to you that I've I've been I've been on my own journey with uh, with Christianity um, over the course of my life. Um, maybe this would be a good time to just kind of jump into to my past. But I yeah, please. I grew up a Jehovah's Witness, um, and uh, I think they have a they're they're very cult like and um their theology isn't very bright and it tends to be a lot of rules that do this don't do that and uh all their rules are are backed up by the threat of ostracism and excommunication um no jehovah's witness will talk to me today uh, if i told them i was an ex-jehovah's witness they would uh treat me like uh some sort of plague carrying um zombie and 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 clam up and walk away um the uh and i found that very unsat i found their explanation for things in the bible very unsatisfying and i became a bit of a secret atheist in my teenage years while still going door to door and spreading this gospel um and sort of the uh sort of the mental totalitarianism of jehovah's witnesses actually uh, i think influenced my later uh, libertarianism i see a lot of the same patterns playing out like when i read about soviet russia and Eastern Germany and um, a lot of things like that. It reminds me so strongly of the the total information control that Jehovah's Witnesses try to achieve. That it just disgusts me, and um, and I think I'll always have an anti-authoritarian streak in me uh, because of my upbringing. Um, but I went through a phase uh, in college where I was a rabid atheist, and I thought the destruction of all religion might actually be like a good way to spend my life. Um, and then I started arguing with people. I had some friends that were Christians and they came from other faiths. Um, I think they were Presbyterians and they, uh, they were just so reasonable. Um, like they could actually, they actually listened to my criticisms and they, uh, they had answers for them. Like, um, they admitted that they can't prove that God exists and mm-hmm. that, and that that required some act of faith or metaphysical assumption or it fit in with like all the other things that they had seen in the world but they couldn't prove that to me i'm like okay like because that was always a sticking point for me i'm like like, show me god like where is god um and but they uh you know they 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 understood that that was a problem for a lot of people and um like they um and, and so i had just fruitful discussions with with christians and um and i took a and I started, um, I took a class on the Bible and I took a class in, in Buddhism in college and I started uh, enjoying the, the background, uh, the, the, the engagement with, with religion, um, which surprised me. And that continued after college. I started going to church for uh, Christmas and Easter to kind of feel like I was being part of this ancient practice and there's something warm about both the Christmas and the Easter narratives, there's something very, uh, there's something I think very healthy about them. Uh, the Christ, both of them speaking about redemption, um, and love and connecting with community around the, the, these shared events. And I kind of come and go in my, in my relationship to Christianity. Um, I, I've been getting back closer to it recently uh, as I've listened to Jordan Peterson uh, in his lectures on the Bible and 
there's something you said about viewing the biblical, recognizing that the biblical stories are not about laying down a set of rules, but that the biblical characters are actually flawed and complicated and interesting people. And that is sort of what is drawing me to them now, because I am, I have internal struggles and I'm going through a lot of struggles in my own life. This is a very intense time for me. And there's something about uh, the biblical narrative of struggle and internal struggle and seeing this and seeing that interpretation of, of Genesis and of the uh, biblical stories that uh, it, it appeals to me more. So in the Bible, like the idea of like what to do with suffering uh, is a question that I'm interested in. And mm -hmm. the, the Buddhist answer is something like if you develop enough skill, you won't suffer. Like you can escape suffering by learning how to not make yourself suffer. So mm -hmm. something about learning to let go of attachments, uh, learning to escape the sort of patterns of mind that come up in response to stimulus, untraining those, uh, maybe you can live with inner peace. And then the, and that, that seems like one, a solution that might work, but it, it sort of just has this really high learning curve. Like in, in order, I'm in the middle of str struggle and suffering right now. What do I do? They're, they say, take a lot of time and develop these really difficult skills over, uh, in, in, in a way that might seem counterintuitive to you. And, and the Christian approach to suffering is something like, um, uh, we all suffer. Uh, sometimes that suffering, if you act rightly in the middle of it, it can be redemptive and serve a greater purpose. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes suffering just happens. But it's still your responsibility to engage with it as best as you can. And there's something about that that seems just a lot more, um, just a lot more present to me, um, a lot more uh, doable. Um, and part of that is in the Bible itself, and part of that is probably the Petersonian hmm. in interpretation of these stories. Um, it's like, don't make things worse and try to make things better. And I can do those things. Um, I don't know that I can escape suffering, but I can do those things. Yeah, that just sort of reminds me of this idea that when God became human, he was meeting humanity where it was. And that is mirrored in the, the individual relationship that uh, that Christianity tries to facilitate in its in, in people that that you know profess to be followers of Christ is sort of you know trying to help one another uh, to to see that that God wants to meet us where we are and the the road to holiness uh, there's another I think misunderstood term like holiness holy means set apart it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean, uh, that that you you know it's it's not the it's not holier than thou it's just it means in some way set apart for uh, for for some sort of uh, special works and I think you know that's where it's it's more this kind of it's this opportunity to hopefully grow in likeness to the divine um, but recognizing that the divine chose to reveal itself. Uh, in in a human form so i think there's a a, a quote from 
one of the, the Eastern Orthodox uh, saints, or it might actually be a saint in both the, the Eastern and Western church, but um, it's, you know, God became human so that humans could become divine and sort of recognizing that that spark exists within all of us and that we can either stoke the flames of that spark. And uh, there's another great line um, from, uh, I think it was Catherine of Siena who said, if you are, or if you become who you're supposed to be, you will set the world on fire. And that kind of metaphor for, for holiness speaks to me on a much deeper level is like, I don't want to live my entire life as a false version of myself or as a less than, uh, you know, I want to become as, as authentically myself as I can be. Um, so I think, you know, that's something that, that everyone uh, can hear. And the, one other thing on, to go back to Satan for one second, because I think at one point I said that he's the thing that sort of deflects blame onto other people. But a lot of time we tend to deflect blame onto ourselves and become our own worst enemies just by uh, being hard on ourselves in, in ways that are not at all conducive to the kinds of, you know, making things better. Um, and that's another area where just the, the G.K. Chesterton, I'm just quoting all the, all my favorite <laughs> people here is, is G.K. Chesterton said, you know, the, that he became Catholic to have his sins forgiven. And that sort of being able to uh, love and forgive as a result of having been forgiven, um, you know, the idea that you have to sort of receive it first in order to give it, um, I think comes through especially profoundly in, in, uh, in my reading of, of scripture and, uh, you know, the church is there as, as an aid for that. Um, but, you know, people can find different ways of, of receiving that grace. I think it's, you know, the, 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 the church just happens to be, uh, the place where, um, where people are, are sort of most intentionally committed to it within this particular tradition. Yeah, I think one hard problem that I struggle with is like this idea of grace versus taking responsibility hmm. because there's some amount that taking responsibility makes you better mm -hmm. and makes you improve yourself more. Whereas when you make a mistake or when you act poorly, if you forgive yourself too easily, like you're not going to improve. But on the other hand, if you're too hard on yourself, you also are not going to be the best that you can for the people around you. So um, it's, it's one of those dichotomies where it seems like a tricky balance of the two. And perhaps in organized religion, which is everybody's least favorite thing, you know, a lot of people will say, I'm spiritual but not religious. And organized mm -hmm. religion is the root of all evil. But there is a way in which in organized religion it's it's not all within your own head but it's a right. re it's a relationship between you and other people in the community and hopefully a wiser more experienced in, in, uh, counselor in the form of uh, leader of the congregation leaders in the congregation who maybe they help you find the balance between uh, grace and kicking your own ass right yeah no that's that is a very important distinction and it is a paradox um, and I think, you know, like Pope Francis last year through that. Yeah. Last year was the, the year of mercy. 
Um, I don't know what we're in now. Maybe, maybe this is the year of judgment. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but but that was a message that I think, you know, for me at you know at that time was uh, was really important for for my uh, kind of healing. But then I did learn when I was going through the the, the kind of catechizing the teaching class to become Catholic um, that as we as we sort of advance in our understanding uh, and and make progress uh, toward you know becoming you know trying trying to become and striving to become a saint, uh, we start to bear more and more responsibility. And you know it is obvious in the sense of if you don't know, then you are not as responsible. Once you know, you're you're clearly more responsible. Um, and yeah, I think the the, the church does have uh, people who. You know, we, we hear mostly about the ones who abuse their authority, but there are far more people who are just sort of going about the, the, the work of, you know, whether it's hearing confessions or counseling their parishioners. Uh, you mentioned pre- Presbyterians earlier, and I was actually baptized Presbyterian. Their leadership structure, pres- presbyter just means elder. And so these are people who have been on the walk longer than others. And so they too can kind of meet people where they are but um, if they know that someone has uh, has been, you know, making progress and then is, is sliding back, they might have a sort of stricter admonition for that person than someone who's just starting off and just kind of getting their bearings. But I do think it's an interesting question, like, where do you draw the line for people coming into the church? And maybe there, there could be a sense in which when I was uh, when I was baptized, you know, I... I didn't meet the the requisite standard for, for holiness that say the Eastern Orthodox Church would have demanded by virtue of their uh, process for for bringing people into the church, which is much more of a sort of uh, intense one on one. The priest gets to know the 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 catechumen over a longer period of time, um, and it might be interesting if we have time to sort of transition into or talk more about this idea of like spiritual but not religious in the context of the mentality in California that, that I think is, is, uh, most, most prevalent, which is a sort of, um, I'd call it like cheap grace. It's the idea of self-forgiveness. And I don't think that self-forgiveness is really, uh, you know, we, there, there's a sense in which we really can't forgive ourselves of, of certain things and when it comes to just the human condition um, maybe if we were looking objectively at the human race any of us would decide just wipe it off the map or something like that and that's where I think we do need some sort of supernatural uh, form of of forgiveness entering the world and that's where I think the more traditional theistic perspective um, gets it right in a way that uh, that is that, that should be a far more welcome message to the world that we live in but I think people still don't want to hear it because it actually implies that, you know, each of us individually has to to change our ways. Um, There's a way in which when I act badly, which, you know, Christians call sin, that it it doesn't affect just me, right? It has impact on other people in the world. So the idea that I can just self-forgive myself and sort, sort of... Uh, and not engage with the community or represent or some sort of 
representative of something larger than myself seems um, to be bad incentives. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, forgiveness for me, but not for thee, or or, or even if, or even if I can just give myself grace whenever I want, then I mean that's just the that's just a sociopathic recipe, right? And the only reason why people don't become sociopaths following these ideologies is because they have instincts of shame and other mm. things. Yeah. But if they follow, if they actually followed uh, these ideas of self-perfection and and other things that are prevalent in what might be called New Agey, but maybe you know, two generations descended from New Age, uh, but the spiritual but not religious circles in the Bay Area. Um, people could behave very badly. Yeah, I think you you said it perfectly, and we could probably do a, a full hour on that, but I know that uh, time is a constraint. I did want to ask you one more question, if you don't mind, which is, uh, when did you come to California, and, and what were the circumstances? You moved from, was it North Carolina? or I was living in North Carolina um, originally, uh, well, with my when I grew up with my parents, um, right. uh, well, born in Rhode Island, lived there till I was eleven. Moved to North Carolina, lived there till I was twenty-two, and then I bounced around a little bit, working jobs after college. Uh, then I came out to San Diego for a grad school in computer science because I read Paul Graham essays and became convinced that hmm. I should start uh, start a software startup. And first, I wanted. I felt like getting a computer science graduate degree would be like a way to transition from a career as uh, mm-hmm. a career as um, an investment banker into a career as a, a startup uh, founder. And so I got that degree, and then I moved up to Mountain View following the Silicon Valley gold rush and trying to make a million dollars. And uh, that didn't work. And I found that journey to be very rewarding in some ways, also very punishing. Uh, I burned out a lot quite often, and it took a lot out of me. And, um, and along the way, I got introduced to Burning Man and sort of neo-hippie, neo-techno-hippie culture and uh, various kinds of spirituality and, and futurism and... Uh, more explicitly libertarian circles, although I, I was I've been libertarian-ish for thirteen years now, fourteen years, and my life has sort of flowered and expanded as I've become exposed to these different intellectual influences, and I've enjoyed being engaged by them. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny how all these sort of seemingly distinct threads. Futurism. I mean, I, I guess the link between Silicon Valley and futurism is, is pretty straightforward, but then tying that to something like libertarianism, and then you find, you know, within the within seasteading circles, you find a lot of people who also go to Burning Man. You find, I mean, I think there, yeah, there's a certain just kind of thinking outside the box, um, which, it, you know, that, that too is, is an area where I feel like it's not... Um, it, you know, it, there's there there is a dark side to that, and I have my own aphorism, which is about sort of openness to new experience, which I used to view as a unilaterally positive thing. But I think I do think that 
there is sort of a sense in which openness to new experience also includes openness to evil spirits. Mm. <laughs> that I, I say that with a with a chuckle because we're not accustomed to really thinking or, or talking in terms of these malign forces that roam about the earth seeking the ruin of souls. But you know, you don't need to 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 go that far in any direction to find people who um, you know seem to have been captivated by some new idea and followed it to their own destruction so I'm always on the lookout for that um, it's interesting to hear you talk about that as uh, I took I took a big five personality big five trait personality test uh, from Jordan Peterson uh, recently uh, the big five model is uh, probably the the most widely used in psychology and uh, I scored 99th percentile on openness, uh, which includes openness to new experience. And, um, and I agree that not all experiences are worthwhile and not all ideas are worthwhile. And I think that gives me the orientation where I get burned by fire a lot and then mm-hmm. learn that it's hot because I need to stick my hand in every fire at least once. Yeah. Um, one one example of what I think is a, a, a bad idea that I'm pretty sure is a bad idea that's been going around is uh, the idea of open relationships. And, mm. and I pushed for, um, I experimented with an open relationship in one of my past relationships and I felt like um, it was a, a terrible idea and it destroyed, and I, I think it, for a lot of people, it can weaken the bond between the partners and there's some idea of it's a very Silicon Valley idea in that if you're hyper logical mm. y- you think like what is the it's just superstition or or tradition that people uh, stay monogamous with each other like there's no rational reason why you can't have a primary partner and also um, be open to to short-term romantic flings on, on the side but uh, I think I think if you really have respect for human, uh, for human evolutionary psychology, as we start to understand it more, it lines up, not completely, but more with a more traditional kind of mindset. Um, like I, I don't think, uh, I, I think evolution, kind of is a is a package full of Chestertonian fences, and. Um, it's, it's so, sort of an understanding of our biology and our background um, kind of gives you a bunch of, can, can limit the amount of social experimentation, your, your realm for social experimentation that has any chance of working. Um, and so maybe I find myself more conservative than my surroundings, but I'm also a contrarian. So right. uh, it's a, uh, I find myself getting more conservative the the more I'm in the bay and perhaps if you stuck me back in North Carolina I'd be more progressive I don't know yeah no I I think I'm the the same way except the opposite where I I grew up in the the liberal bay area so I reacted and became conservative and ultimately found a kind of tenuous home in libertarianism um and it was first that I think I first got that insight about not you know tearing down the fence you don't know why it was put up in the first place from uh, from Friedrich Hayek, who's was not a Christian. He was just you know a libertarian who wrote a lot about spontaneous order and how tradition might evolve to be adaptive to the society in the same way that certain genetic traits are adaptive for an organism. 
But then later I discovered almost a, a verbatim quote from the book of Proverbs, which is, uh, do not remove a boundary stone that was set up by your ancestors. And it's there is a tension between that and the sort of dynamic, uh, you know, coming, you know, the, the coming of the of the Holy Spirit in the sense is like this brand new thing that erupts into the community with this new energy and it kind of creates all these new possibilities for spiritual growth. Um, but I think that they're all the more powerful if you can kind of contain them still within some sort of framework that represents the, the learned experience of, of hundreds or thousands of previous generations. So there, there is a tension between, um, between order. This is the kind of the order and chaos, uh, dichotomy here where, um, tradition gives us order and innovation or change you know, produces chaos and growth, right. but it also gives us growth because if you don't change it all, then you can't adapt to new, your new environment. You can't, um, you can't face new challenges. So you need to change in order to maintain fitness. But at the same time, there is a lot of wisdom in the tradition and a lot of personal satisfaction in the tradition it's it it it, it grew up it, it became tradition for a reason because a lot of times it fits the shape of the human soul in in, in my opinion so i th i think the, the the task for someone that wants to sort of wisely approach life is to find uh the balance between maintaining a connection with the past and and facing the future with arms open and it's not easy to do. Amen. And I find that I find that to be something that I keep going. It's something that I keep wrestling with, and I probably will. Yeah. Like, what's the right amount of um, what's the right amount of hedonism? What's the right amount of openness to to new experiences and I think that and some of it seems clearly good to me like there my first burning man really opened me up and lit me on fire with uh, with just passion to create and to uh, be more me and um, it made me I think adults don't have enough fun and I just had like the most fun I had had in years and years and years of grinding out 80 hour weeks and, um, and it was just good for my soul and um but there's a way that you know in the bay area you could have a burning man like experience every weekend and is infinite fun is, is that the answer to life it doesn't seem to be like it seems to start drying up for me right and and it's these older things like relationships with with uh, both of the romantic kind and with my friends and building a community, seeing the same things, be becoming attached and allowing myself to accept responsibility that seemed to be um, where a lot of meaning is. Um, and also service to others. I wrote a blog post once about different sources of meaning and all these were in it. Probably a few more. Yeah. Yeah, reality should never be boring. There, there are way... Too many things to explore 
And I think that there's sort of a thought experiment where we can imagine having, you know, some machine that gives us unrestrained access to uh, to pleasurable experiences. I think maybe Robert Nozick first framed this this experiment, uh, thought experiment, this this experience machine, and he he argued that we wouldn't actually choose to go into this machine uh, because part of what we crave is is the challenge that comes from certain kinds of constraints. And so the rules, I think, are there to open up broader vistas and uh, even more real possibilities. Uh, but I don't know that Nozick was right that everyone would necessarily choose that. And I think that with things like virtual reality and all sorts, you know, the, the new experiences that are available to us, I do worry, not, and not just about other people, but about myself, that you know, I might choose some watered down version of reality uh, as a substitute if if life became too much to bear. <laughs> but good news is we don't have to bear it alone. We have, uh, you know, friends and, and community and uh, and uh, it's it's uh, yeah, one day at a time. Right. Well, this is this is where I want to bring up my new favorite video game. OK, it's called Getting Over It. All right. And. Um, and I've, I think it's great training for life in, in a unique way that very few video games are. And I haven't actually played it myself. I've just watched other people playing it. And the, uh, the fun thing about watching other people playing it is that they rage. Uh, like get angry? Or? They get, yes. They, they, a lot of the popular streamers have done things like throw their chairs or break their computers on, on, on live streams. And, uh, or break their mice anyway. I don't think anybody's broken their computer. Um, but they're, and, and the reason why they rage is because this game is uh, one of the few that mirrors the difficulty of real life. And especially speaks to me in, in a lot of the struggles that I've been going through personally um, in, in that in getting over it, you're trying to climb a mountain uh, using some very wonky controls. And if you mess up, there's a chance of losing a lot of progress. Hmm. In f fact, up to about, I think about up to about like 30% through the game, it's very easy to fall all the way back to the beginning. Hmm. Um, and so in order to get past the first 30% of the game, eventually you start having sort of places in the mountain where it's harder to fall all the way back. But, um, but you have to really master that first 30% to get through it. And, and, and it kind of comes in chunks like that. And, uh, and it's very, uh, it just it reminds me of what, what setbacks really feel like. Like, mm -hmm. uh, like I, I'm, I, I, I don't know how, how personal I want to get on a podcast, but I, I recently, you know, I, I lost a relationship that, that was going on for a long time. And I feel like, um, you know, I, I do have a, a goal in my personal life to, be married and have a family and it feels like starting again at the beginning uh and and i think that's like the hard thing in life to deal with is when you've built something maybe you have build a company and it goes bankrupt and you like this is a common thing in a startup you you, you invest years of your life into building a company mm -hmm. and you pay yourself below market wages and it goes bankrupt and you're left with nothing but the experiences and memories and um that is the feeling of getting over it 
And if you have the option to play another video game, there's so many video games that'll hold your hand and like basically beating it is just a function of how much time you put in. Mm. You know, they try to make it like, like a lot of play difficulty, but not actually difficult. Um, and this is a game that just takes it the completely opposite way. Um, it tries to be as difficult as possible. And you know, it's much more like real life. If you can tolerate this game, then you can tolerate not getting in the experience machine. Yeah. So maybe there's some sense in which our pre-existing uh, or you know pre-mortal souls chose to take on the challenge of life and you know maybe I don't know I've, I've heard that I've heard that idea sort of floating around it's not part of Catholic theology so I'm, I might be uh, getting into heretical territory mm -hmm. so I should probably maybe, just, uh, maybe our souls chose the game with the highest they chose to play the game on the highest difficulty setting that and, be... and, and that's the what we have in common with everybody else in this universe is that we're all the souls that chose the highest difficulty setting and in another universe everything is set up uh, to be like really easy and to give lots of positive feedback and have lots of nice cutscenes and triple A production quality, but in this universe, we're just uh, we're just struggling through and and disaster and setbacks are lurking around every corner, and our characters don't necessarily become more powerful with every day. Um, sometimes we become a lot weaker. That's a sad, beautiful, tragic idea. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're almost out of time. I'd like to ask you if you have any parting thoughts or anything you'd like to say. Hmm, well, I, uh, I admire that you put yourself out there by doing this podcast, and uh, I feel like the... The, the the authentic human quality that comes through it you know a lot of people talk about I'm going to do a podcast and then you know they never actually do um, so I mostly just want to encourage this project and say that uh, I think you know you're at the intersection of a lot of interesting ideas and uh, the, the I, I don't include myself in that but <laughs> uh, you 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 can um, I think you can create a really interesting synthesis if you continue this uh, because you have a way of making people feel comfortable and uh, and sort of bringing out their stories in a way that otherwise wouldn't be told. Uh, so mainly I would just want to encourage that and uh, I hope that 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 it can uh, blossom into you know something that that I would listen to on a regular basis. And then the only other thing is uh, I hope you'll start to join me on the thousand nations blog yeah. uh, a thousand nations.com which was started by uh, Mike Gibson who is a board member of the Seasteading Institute and the blog role is about 12 people long but um, it, it's been dormant for a few years uh, and I've just been posting sporadically to it but I do think that the the idea of kind of the meta idea of seasteading of letting many of these experiments in self-governance bloom, whether just, you know, whether the experiment is one person or a small community. Um, I think that we're in agreement that that is something important. And if we are, if, if humanity is going to have a future, it's not going to be under some monolithic institution. It's going to have to be 
uh, a reflection of the actual diversity of of the planet and not the superficial sort of diversity that uh, that that always gets gets talked about and kind of the tokenism but the the real the real diversity that I think you're you're uh, trying to explore thank you Charlie um, and thank you for helping to to make this podcast happen um, it's uh, it's it's only one half me and it's uh, half my guests um, and with that let's uh we're about out of time so let's let's call it a day thanks for thanks for taking the time thanks for thanks for joining me